Welcome to a rainy point two law review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. We are here the week of July 11th through July 14th, 2023. Um, let's see. What else is there? Oh, I wanted to clarify something from last week. The uh, dog days of summer. Yes. Oh, yes. The dog days. We. I, I don't know how I just lucked out it is actually the dog days of summer we're in it we're in the dog days what kind of dog <laughs> what kind of dog it's actually from a roman calendar thing that they say oh, okay. oh it's the hottest yeah. time it's the dog days of summer or it's uh, the days of the dog i think is where it started and then it got colloquialized everything to dog days and that's what we're in the dog days of summer it lasts till like august 11th which when you think about it kind of makes sense yeah that seems to add up so when did it start are we in- uh, J- july 5th like like that week there's oh. it has to do with so the that's a really short moon. period yeah it's only like a month what's the hottest time yeah yeah no it is i the, mean i get it it's the dog days and also the world health organization is trying to take away my diet coke and from my cold dead hands you you'll accept the risk <laughs> oh my they are not gonna get my diet coke no can you imagine oh the people would riot. I riot. Mean, smoking was one thing, but if you take if you take soda, if you and diet coke in particular, oh, man, we are a subset yeah. of hardcore. McDonald's is going down. I mean, how many people just drive through that place in the middle of the afternoon to get a large diet coke? Uh, not me, but some. I mean, it's got to be copious amounts. Copious. Speaking of copious amounts, we got a, a, a non-copious amount of cases this week. I think we have six, and four of them are yours. That's look, true. It's a light load. You're going to hear my voice a lot. I, I apologize, I, I, folks. No, no, they'd love it. Let's go ahead and uh, have yourself a uh, ex parte summary. Yeah, so we're starting out State v. Allen, juror misconduct. All right. I have Bruce Lavalalore, uh, PC, and Bruce Lavalalore versus the Guarantee Group, LLC, and that is contract formation, meeting of the minds, statute of frauds. Dodge County Humane Society versus City of Fremont, quasi-judicial. All right, let's get started with the first one. Go up, Carson. Okay, we start out with State v. Allen, and this is a heck of a long opinion, uh, approximately 35 pages. A lot of facts here, and that's because it it tends to tie into some of the arguments, but I'll try to go through them as quickly as I can. Uh, This is an appeal from the Lincoln County District Court uh, based on a murder conviction after a jury trial. And basically what happens here is that there are two vehicles, an individual in, in one vehicle is pursuing Uh, Another couple of individuals who eventually stop and the individual in the chasing vehicle, uh, a Brett Torres, goes to get out of his vehicle. And at that point in time, he is uh, shot by Mr. Allen uh, nine times and dies uh, from his wounds. And the basis of uh, this encounter and, and the argument at jury was if this was self-defense or not if mr torres had uh, been chasing mr allen and if this was a sudden quarrel or or if this uh, was a more premeditated act or something that was not self-defense and uh, as we can see based on the conviction the jury did not find that it was self-defense but that kind of underlies what uh, goes on in this case and the interesting piece on appeal is uh, that there 
is an issue with the Torres family. And basically, if uh, the Torres family and their reputation for being bad actors in the North Platte area and kind of rough individuals influenced the jury at all. And there were a couple of affidavits that were submitted by jurors after this jury trial that essentially said that there were jurors who had mentioned the Torres family's reputation for violence, their reputation for being uh, bad characters and and actors, and that they were maybe nervous about what might happen if they uh, convicted uh, or or, uh, found Mr. Allen uh, to be innocent. And so um, here... And again, there's a couple other areas of argument, sufficiency of evidence, and then um, ineffective assistance of counsel. But I'm going to focus on what the bulk of the opinion focuses on, which is this juror misconduct issue. And uh, again, the jurors here had speculated that it might be bad for them if they didn't convict uh, the um, Mr. Allen of this uh, murder. And the, the primary argument is whether or not these statements were first admissible and then if they demonstrated any kind of juror misconduct and so juror misconduct is defined in nebraska revised statute 25 sub uh, section 2 and it does not necessarily mean a juror's bad faith or malicious motive but means a juror's violation or departure from an established rule or procedure for production of a valid verdict and so here, a criminal defendant claiming juror misconduct must show two things. One, that there was an existence of juror misconduct, and two, that such misconduct was prejudicial to the extent that the defendant was denied a fair trial. And so, so those are the two things that you have to demonstrate. And the uh, big discussion that goes here, which this is a great opinion um, for dealing with jurors and juror misconduct, which we don't see a ton of, because the difficult thing with a juror misconduct case, and, and this opinion really articulates that, is how do we go into the motives or what jurors are doing behind closed doors uh, without feeling like we're having an influence on the process? You know, How do you get these actual things to come out? And essentially here, it, it, it states, uh, Nebraska Revised Statute 27606, that no evidence may be received concerning the effect of any statement upon a juror's mind, its influence upon the juror, the mental processes of a juror, and it also does not allow a juror's affidavit to impeach a verdict on the basis of jury motives, methods, misunderstanding, thought processes, or discussions during deliberations. And so a lot of this says that our statutes are essentially um, written in a way that we want to protect that jury and the way that they deliver the the way that they deliberate we don't want to um, allow ourselves to influence them or allow um, outside influences to have an effect on the jurors because what jurors use to make uh, decisions or all the things that come with us implicit biases all those kind of things that is part of having a jury and so we we don't want to influence that and there's a pretty extensive discussion on that piece Um, But here they talk about how they have not had occasion to specifically address in deliberational statements sharing community knowledge of local inhabitants' reputations. Um, But they did find that at least one other court, which ironically it's a court from Alaska, which I kind of thought was interesting, but has explained that community knowledge is not external information. And so the big issue here is, is it something external coming into a jury? Meaning, uh, was there a threat coming from the outside that changed uh, what the jurors 
thought, thought here. And this Alaska case says that generalized knowledge that is available to a significant portion of the community should not qualify for the exception, both because it would make it impossible to hold trials in small communities and because such information is more likely to be tested by the jury itself. And so here, essentially what the court says is that because North Platte is a smaller community between 5,000 and 100,000 people, most people probably knew of this Torres family, probably knew of their reputation, and therefore it was not going to be external information that was prejudicial. It was just generalized community knowledge. And so they addressed that the jurors' speculation based on community knowledge that they might suffer some harm is not information from an external source at all. So it's not um, coming from the outside. And that it originated within the jurors from their general body of experiences, prejudices, improper motives, and all of those things are not extraneous influences, which would allow any kind of new trial or any kind of reversal based on that. And so the speculation of fear that is distinctive from the evidence that there was an outside threat um, was, was actually coming from inside the jurors, not from the outside, and there wasn't any you know, direct threats brought from the Torres family, and so therefore that was not any kind of uh, juror misconduct. And then as far as the sufficiency of the evidence and um, the ineffective assistance of counsel, they addressed both of those briefly, uh, but as we often see with those two issues, um, they are not uh, prejudicial and are not a basis for reversal, and therefore it was affirmed. All right, I have Bruce Lavalier, uh, Lavalure, PC, and Bruce Lavalure uh, versus the Guarantee Group, LLC. This is a civil case. It's out of Hall County uh, District Court. It's uh, all about contract formation and statute of fraud. So basically, Bruce Lavalier, PC, is the, the um, organization that Bruce Lavalure uses as an accountant. Um, so he had... Um, you know, provided the public with accountant services. And he also did work for this guarantee group, LLC, and the, who constructed homes. And um, depending on who you, well, ultimately the facts will have to come out here depending on what happened. But um, the allegation here is that the accountant had an agreement with the construction company to provide accountant services to basically figure out how this um, community that they're constructing could be profitable. And they basically came to him and said, um, we're gonna pay you $800 an hour for you to figure out how to make us not lose $1.6 million or something like that. And uh, what he said when they got done, and, and he spent lots, of, he, he testified, I think he spent thousands of hours um, researching how to their financial situation, or maybe it was hundreds of hours researching their financial situation to try and figure out how to solve this problem. And he developed a, a plan for the construction people to say, okay, well, if you um, do it in phases, you can probably be profitable if it lasts, you know, so many years. Um, we figured out how you can make a small profit. And they say, okay, how much do we owe you? And he says, well, you can either uh, build me a house um, or you can, and give it to me and sign it over, or you can um, provide me $1,000 for every closing that you provide on the uh, 205 homes that are gonna be part of this development. Um, they chose not to build him a home. They chose to give him $1,000 at closing on each of these developments that, you were, that they were going to develop. So they, this, this isn't the, a little background here. This was back in 2013. 
Um, there were a ton of allegations and a ton of issues. The only two that have risen up to this case are, was there an oral contract um, for the $1,000 on every closing of a home, basically for $205,000? And uh, did they are, uh, did they have a contract to build him a home and then self-finance it? There was another agreement that was uh, alleged there on the part of the accountant. So they have a jury trial. They go through the jury trial. They present evidence. The plaintiff uh, presents evidence. And then at halftime, they move for a directive verdict, as you often do. And what happened here was the uh, district court granted the motion for a directed verdict. Um, the defendant said, hey, there was no meeting of the minds. We didn't meet uh, on a, as far as the $205,000. We never, you know, there's no proof that we agreed to that. That's an oral contract. Further, it should be void as public policy. And the district court said, well, um, never mind those two. We think there could be a uh, question about the meeting of the minds. That would be for a jury. But what I'm going to do just as the district court is I'm going to rule that the statute of frauds prevents this uh, agreement because it could not have been completed within a year because it's 205 homes, which you cannot construct in a year realistically. Um, I sub and we'll get to that. It's, it's hypothetically possible, but not realistically. So they, the district court directed the verdict verdict for defense. There was no agreement and the jury was dismissed. So there you go. Uh, you got a directed verdict. Now, the plaintiff appeals up to district or up to the Nebraska Supreme Court. Nebraska Supreme Court says, "Listen, the directed verdict is a huge standard. You have to take everything that the plaintiff presented as true in order to find, as a matter of law, that you can't do it." So, this is a, just a great, great, great opinion. If you have anything to do with contract formation or statute of frauds, if you're alleging something in statute of frauds world. Um, this case is going to cause you to modify your arguments over the weekend. That's something you're going to need to do. It is a basically a horn book um, for everybody about contract formation in Nebraska. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it cites Professor Linich in uh, the first couple pages. Um, and instant credibility. <laughs> instant credibility uh, for you know an issue of Nebraska law. It says, in other words, if reasonable jurors could. Uh, emphasize could find facts that would allow the non-moving party to prevail a directed verdict should not be granted so that's the standard that they're adopting in nebraska and not only do they cite professor lenich they cite english common law we go back to english common law courts there's all kinds of legal nerd jest pouring over this opinion oh. it's 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 really wonderful uh and Ultimately, what they do is they reverse the district court finding of the statute of frauds, barring uh, it going towards a uh, jury, because the statute of frauds doesn't apply. Because in Nebraska, by its terms, the agreement has to be able to be not uh, completed in a year under that portion of that statute of frauds. Hypothetically, as unrealistic as it is, you could build 205 houses in a year. So you don't get to use reality to modify or void that agreement under the statute of frauds. So it's reversed. It's remanded for further proceedings on the issue of, uh, you know, whether there was an agreement and how much damages the plaintiff should have here. But again, if you have anything with statute of frauds, anything with contract formation, you have to take a look at this. And if you have John Lenich and common law and an opinion, 
English, that alone, yes. that alone is worth taking a glance oh, at. Oh, there's it. so much, Carson. There's just pages and pages of, uh, you know, other contract books, other restatements of contracts. Like, it's 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 a meaty, meaty, meaty opinion. Yeah, I don't know if to be if I should be giddy or you know if I want to break out in in, in hives and, and, and a sweat. I feel like I'm about to get cold called. Well, um, I'll leave you be. Well, but anyway, it's reversed. It goes back to district court, and uh, we'll see what happens. All right, perfect. Uh, last Supreme Court opinion we come to is Dodge County Humane Society versus City of Fremont. And the big issue here is that the city of Fremont had canceled a contract with Dodge County Humane Society to provide their Humane Society services to uh, Fremont. And this is coming to us from an appeal in the district court, uh, which originated under a petition in air. And so what happens here is basically there was a notice that was given to the Humane Society that we're terminating their con- your contract. The Humane Society then files a petition in error in the district court alleging that the council and the city had no cause to terminate the contract. And even if, the, if there was cause, the city had uh, not performed the uh, necessary prerequisites for termination. And so um, the district court uh, issues an order on this and uh, basically says that they agree uh, with uh, the Humane Society issue a temporary injunction. And then we come uh, to the uh, city council and the the city challenging the district court's jurisdictional basis for hearing the petition in error. And the Supreme Court here agrees and says that the council was not exercising a judicial function when it voted at a meeting to send a letter to the Humane Society regarding the party's contract disputes. And since the vote authorizing the mayor to send the letter was not a judicial or a quasi-judicial act, the judicial court was not empowered, or the district court was not empowered to review the council's vote under the air proceeding statute of uh, section 25 1901 and so the big issue here is whether or not a proceeding is judicial or quasi-judicial and since the humane society's petition in error and the evidence and record do not show that the council exercised any kind of judicial function when it voted to approve a motion to send a letter to the humane society regarding the termination of contract they were not acting in a judicial or quasi judicial um, forum and and therefore there is no uh, ability to appeal to the district court and uh, the supreme court goes on to talk additionally about uh, the council not receiving any evidence or testimony no official record and that they were not uh, rendering a decision in an advert adversarial proceeding consistent with due process and so they say contrary to the humane society's assertions the council merely approved a council motion for the mayor to send a letter to the humane society and that that was not a judicial action and so therefore they reverse and uh, dismiss for lack of jurisdiction because the district court lacked jurisdiction i will note that there was a concurrence on this opinion uh, on this opinion uh, from justice castle discussing um, if the city or the council ever really probably have power uh, to deal with contract uh, issues like this or, or breach of contract, which he believes that they do not. And so that's, I guess, a little interesting note just on um, when city councils or, or boards are performing a judicial or a quasi-judicial function that allows for uh, any kind of civil appeal. 
All right, that's it for Nebraska Supreme Court. We got Nebraska Court of Appeals. Carson, I believe it's back to you. Wow, we are just teeing them right back up. There you oh. go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take a breath. I can or, I can edit that out if you need to. Right. Yeah, no. So we jump straight into the Court of Appeals, and the first case that we come to is Hawks versus Hawks, and this is a long opinion. Uh, it's a uh, divorce opinion, and the reason is here is there's a ton of facts, and the issue on appeal. And again, I'm going to try to summarize this briefly is that the father, uh, Jeff Hawks, had uh, been paroled from uh, prison and starts to try to uh, exercise his parenting time. And basically what happens is that every time he shows up for his parenting time, something uh, keeps happening where it's he's not able to exercise it. And generally this is like the kids won't get out of the vehicle, don't want to see him. Uh, it seems like there's lots of issues uh, that have to be dealt with uh, therapeutically. And basically there's just problems with whether or not the kids are wanting to meet uh, uh, with their dad and so this results in him not getting a lot of his parenting time and so he's trying to say that uh, the his ex-wife uh, Ashley is in contempt uh, relating to the parenting time for her basically not allowing this to happen and and he argues that maybe she was trying to undermine some of this visitation some other things but the court finds uh, that he was not the district court finds that he that she was not in contempt and then finds that um, he uh, was required to pay uh, her attorney's fees. They do find her in contempt for failing to pay uh, for some of the supervised visitation uh, fees and and find that she had purged herself, though, because uh, he owed her more money than she owed him. On appeal, uh, the Court of Appeals basically uh, deals with these issues um, in, in a similar way that the the district court did however the interesting piece that they do is that they found that because um the the husband jeff was found to not be in contempt and that his actions were not frivolous that the district court abused its discretion by ordering him to pay any of ashley's attorney's fees and the interesting piece here is that the district court had found her in contempt and had given her a jail sentence but they had purged that because jeff owed her more money than she owed him and so now they've had to reverse this and give the district court a, a an option to reevaluate how much all of this cost to basically say okay you know jeff owed 50 15,000 uh, Ashley owed 2,000 we purged her contempt now that we're saying that Jeff doesn't owe this 15,000 of attorney's fees because he wasn't held in contempt and his actions weren't frivolous you're going to have to reevaluate what exactly you're going to do with this um, but again there's some good discussion here regarding contempt and and uh following through on visitation orders and, and all of those kind of things. Uh, but I guess the, the interesting piece here is what exactly the uh, district court is going to do now that it's going back to him and you thought you had a purged order um, or you thought you had a contempt order purged and all this money paid and no jail sentence ordered. And now all of a sudden, because of this re reversal, uh, the one party now is going to owe some money again or they're going to have to go to jail. So uh, I guess kind of a, an interesting outcome in that opinion. All right, I had State v. Hood, uh, State v. Edward Hood. This is an appeal from Garden County District Court. Um, what happened here is Mr. Hood was convicted by jury for motor vehicle homicide, manslaughter, and driving under the influence, um, among some other things, very, very minor things, some other infractions. This had to do with an accident that occurred 
um, a number of years ago. He was sentenced to consecutive terms on, on basically each count, uh, 49 to 50 years on the motor vehicle homicide, 19 to 20 on the manslaughter, five years for the DUI. Um, so what the issue here, this is a post-conviction case. So he's been convicted. He went up on appeal. Um, the district court here denied his motion for post-conviction relief without a hearing, and he's challenging that here on appeal. Um, there is a good heading here, a little good nugget. The uh, analysis portion begins with general post-conviction law for Nebraska. So if you want to take a couple paragraphs there and look at uh, post-conviction law in Nebraska, they uh, alleged a number of things here. He uh, alleged he should have been um, it was an error to advise him not to testify and adv advise him to waive that. Um, so the counsel was ineffective for that purpose. There were also some issues regarding, um, you know, not reaching out to a medical expert to try and put forward the argument that uh, it wasn't alcohol that was in his system or there was a minor bit of alcohol in his system. But uh, the primary per uh, issue here was a uh, diabetic um I guess, incident that led to all of this, and that he uh, argues that he was incompetent during the time of trial. Now, here's something that I didn't know. So anyone, basically anyone in the courtroom, if, if they believe somebody's incompetent, um, hopefully not the attorney, but <laughs> maybe the client, uh, if they believe is incompetent, can raise that issue uh, with, the, with, the, with the court, and it can trigger a competency hearing if, under the statute, if at any time while criminal proceedings are pending, facts are brought to the attention of the court, either from its own observation or from suggestion of counsel, which raise a doubt as to the sanity of the defendant, the question should be settled before further steps are taken. So uh, anybody can bring it up, and uh, it has to be resolved before there can be any sort of progression on the criminal matter. Now, um, during the entire proceedings nobody raised any issue as far as the competency of hood that's used as evidence to suggest that uh, there wasn't a real issue there it's just something he's claiming on for post-conviction relief so that was denied but uh, that was a little interesting nugget for state v hood it was affirmed by the way oh okay last opinion we come to is Pekarek versus Pekarek, and this is another um, appeal regarding um, a contempt order and a finding that parties had shared legal custody. Interesting piece here on the legal custody is that the divorce decree gave joint legal custody, but the agreement from the parenting plan uh, gave sole legal custody. And the parenting plan apparently is attached to the divorce decree. And so the Court of Appeals deals with that pretty easily, saying that the divorce decree is what controls here. And even though the parenting plan was attached, it's not incorporated by reference. And there's nothing in the decree that indicates that um, it is something that's being used. And so uh, they do find here that it is joint legal custody. And then the other big issue here is that um, apparently the mom was not complying with allowing uh, the father's visitation, and so they do find her in contempt and order attorney's fees based on um, that finding. And um, the uh, district court is affirmed by the Court of Appeals. There you go. That's it for this week. Am I right? That's it. Oh, that's wonderful. So we are in the dog days of summer. The and rainy dog days. The rainy dog days. It was a little rainy today, wasn't it? it, it a little wet and wild in central Nebraska recently. So, uh, everything going good for you? Yeah, just marching <laughs> along. <laughs> good. Summer is flying by. So, um, let me think. 
Next week, we're going to be a little late, right? Yeah, next week, unfortunately, uh, you're probably going to have to wait until uh, the end of the weekend yeah. to uh, hear our, our lovely voices across your airwaves. That's all right. We'll get it done. Um, so for right now, we'll go back to episode one to listen to the disclaimer. This is Point Two Law Review brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Do a turn or a turn of 25.